Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode of the Business of Healthcare podcast, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mohammed Al-Ubaidi. Mohammed is the CEO and the founder of the world's largest personal healthcare records organization. And that organization is called Patients Know Best. So in this conversation, we do a bit of a deep dive into the platform and what it does. We also talk about future developments around the use of data, working with schools, integrations with other applications, the future of their own app. And we also talked about the importance of supporting patients with the translation and explanations of some of their healthcare conditions. And we also talk about the role of AI. I absolutely loved this conversation. It's a fantastic, fantastic interview, and I cannot wait for you to dive in. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. Mohammed, thank you so much. To kick off this interview, can you share a highlight of your week? That's a really nice question to start. I've been really looking forward to doing this podcast. I would have normally picked this one. I was running through my daughter's grades this week, and we'd made a bet that if she improves her grades, we would go to the Grand Prix in Bahrain in March. Don't, don't know. Hang on a minute. Most kids get like a tenner. I have to tell you, Tara, it's not looking good for going to the Grand Prix. However, there's one subject she's really actually got 100% at, and I had no idea, and it's geography. Apparently, the thing she likes about it is the business side, not the physical side. That's why she was getting high grades. She's now being overwhelmed with business stories from me and we can do this and so on. That was my highlight for this week. How old is she? She's 13, going on to 30. Okay, so. thank you so much. So it's great that you reached out to me. You've got a company which you founded in mm. 2008 called Patients Know Best. Yes. So in my research, I went on, I registered. <laughs> it took less than five minutes mainly because my computer knows my NHS number. So using ah, my finger, showed the password, yeah, didn't know. Where I've got an Apple keyboard, you know, like you can use your fingerprint. Yeah, yeah. That does make life easier. So I did it online and I was going through and I was like, yep, yeah, 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 this is fine. And then I was like, oh, I really, really, really like this. So can you share in simple terms, what is Patients Know Best and why did you start it? Patients Know Best is a medical record that the person owns. It's designed that it goes with you wherever you go, 
throughout your life, cradle to grave. It's your record. And it gradually collects data from everyone looking after you. And it helps you look after yourself. And it helps the people who are looking after you. So in your case in Kent, I don't know if your record when you arrived was empty. But so this is something we're fixing in Q1 next year. But at the moment, when we have a customer, they send you data. So the Kent hospitals are starting to send data, but it sounds like they haven't sent your data in yet. The GPs in Kent haven't sent you the data, but next quarter we're going to fix it. So we'll just pull your GP data for you automatically. And then you can start connecting things. So if you want to connect up your Fitbit, if you want to connect up your blood pressure measurements. I like the fact that it connects to Strava because Strava connects to my Whoop, which connects to my Apple (laughs) Watch. But if I could ask for a product request. If it connect to my Whoop, then I would have so much more data regarding, yes. you know, like my sleep, uh, regarding my stress levels, regarding my heart rate. Tara, we are doing it for you next year. Hang okay, in there for you. me. Thank you. Um, but, but, <laughs> but the point of what you're saying is if someone has diabetes and they come in for an appointment and they say, well, have you taken your medications? Have you changed your diet? Have you changed your exercise? And if you're anything like me, when I was talking to my doctors with my immune deficiency, yeah, yeah sure, sure I am, doctor. It's completely different if you connect up your Fitbit to show you're actually walking. There's your blood pressure and there's all the other things that are going on at home. Data you have that your doctor doesn't. And you compare it with data the doctor has that you don't. And you together decide what the best way to look after you is. That's the idea behind the company. But it's a real difficulty to release the data to you from all the providers. They really struggle with it. And the company came out of, I wanted this to happen a lot more quickly and a lot bigger scale than it was because I wanted it for myself as a patient. So I thought I'll start a company that makes it easy to release a lot more data a lot more quickly. So we're about 3.5 million registered people, including you, apparently. We register 100,000 every month. We release 15 to 20 million test results every month. And what we're doing next year is releasing a lot more GP records alongside the hospital records. For me, having genetic immune deficiency, it's a rare disease. And when I see my doctor, he panics, doesn't know what to do. And I end up telling him what to do. And I always thought that my doctors trust me because I'd gone to medical school. But when I did my research in the States on giving patients their record, it turned out that the reason they trust me is I actually went to all the appointments. The patient ends up the de facto integrator and connector across the healthcare system. I end up telling them what's happened, and I often tell them what ought to happen. And so I was doing my research in the States about giving patients the record. It became apparent that the more data the patient has, the more they can help the people helping them, as well as the more they can help themselves directly. Where you've got a rare condition, I can definitely see it's a partnership. Yes. Because they're not the specialists. But for patients that maybe don't have a rare condition, so my child has got diabetes. I mean, some could argue it's rare. Yes. But I don't always feel like my team feels like the patient does know best. (laughs) Sure. And coming with data just infuriates them. (laughs) So why did you call it patients know best? I would say, Tara, I get asked that question every day by people in patients know best. So like, why did you make our job so hard? I'm trying to talk to the doctor. I've already annoyed them because you've called it patients know best. So most people think that it's because I believe that patients know best. And you're right, some people with rare diseases, not everyone, by the way, do know more than their doctor does. But that's not why I called it. I called it know best as a mission statement, not a declarative statement. So my mission is to make sure the patient does know best. Because the vast majority don't. They have much more interest than the doctor does in what happens to their body. They have much more time. They don't have the expertise. They haven't gone to medical school. But you don't actually need to know that much. You need to spend a lot of time on it. 
when I was doing my research, I met this doctor in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and he had a patient come in with chest pain and he thought he might have a tear in the largest artery, the aorta. So he sent them for a CT scan and luckily the CT scan result comes back. First line is no dissection, patient's fine. He moves on to his next patient. He's got so many to look after. But that month they were giving the record to the patient and the patient emails him and he says, what's a thyroid? Dr. Jim says to him, yeah, well, why are you asking? He says, well, the last line of the report says there's shadowing on the thyroid. So what's a thyroid? Thyroid is just in front of your voice box. And the shadowing, the radiologist was warning the doctor that this patient has cancer in the thyroid. And he'd missed it. He'd only looked at the first line. He's busy. I mean, he's human. Of course, he makes mistakes. But he was unusual in that his reaction after you know, bringing the patient, doing the biopsy, taking out the cancer and patient's fine. He then began asking all his patients to look at the record. He said to them, I can't know everything. You are part of the team. You have to look at it with me. So you're right that most doctors don't act like you coming in with data is a useful thing and definitely don't believe that you know best. But I don't believe you can deliver healthcare in the 21st century if the patient isn't part of the team. It's a mental shift, right? All of medical school tells you you're the doctor, you know everything, patients come to find out what you think. And they do want to know what you think, but also the patient has lots of knowledge, expertise, time, deep, deep interest in doing the right thing. And if you don't use them, what are you doing? You're missing out on this huge asset. How can you not use that? So it's a shift in mentality for everyone in the healthcare system. That's what we're trying to do. And unfortunately, we do it by an annoying statement to begin with. <laughs> but, it's, but it's the start of a journey. Would you ever change the name? I don't think so. I still think it's a genius name. I'll tell you one thing, Tara. When, when I started, everyone said to me, the junior doctors, the young ones, they'll get it. But the old ones, they won't get it. Turned out to be the reverse, Tara. I was surprised. It took me a while to understand why. The more you know, the more comfortable you are with other people knowing. You don't feel threatened by it. So the doctors who knew the most were the ones who said, oh, yeah, yeah I just asked a patient. They tell me what's going on. And luckily, those doctors are the most senior ones who hold the biggest budget. So they end up being the ones that push for it, even though the other 99% hate it. There's 1% that are at the top of their game and they, they get it. They say, yeah, I'm totally on board with that. I'm in the minority in believing it's a genius name. I really like it though. I'm just writing down, the more you know, the more you don't mind other people knowing. I like yeah. that. So when I was signing up to your platform, I first yes. went onto my phone and I went mm -hmm. into the app store. I couldn't find it. So we made a decision in the UK that because everybody wanted the NHS app, or at least the NHS wanted the NHS app, we thought we'll make our system appear inside the NHS app. So I know you signed up on the website. Thank you for doing some research up front. If you open up the NHS app, because you're in Kent, you have access to 10 extra screens that other people, say in South East London, don't have access to, where you get a lot of functionality that's come from us. So now that you've registered, if you go onto the NHS app and tap on, say, test results, last year for PKB login one time, as soon as you log in, from that point onwards, the NHS app will show you everything that's on the website. We're doing the same thing now in the NHS Wales app. And then later on next year, we will release our own app. And that's when you get your Apple Health and other things connected off your phone. Because everyone was using the NHS app during COVID. We thought we'll put all our efforts into that to begin with. Who pays for the product? In the UK, we have two kinds of customers. Half of them are the hospitals. So in Kent, Dartford were the first ones to pay. And they pay based on how many people they look after every year, what volume of appointments they're going to deal with. But then the second half of customers is regions. So ICS is in England, health boards in Wales, where they pay like Northwest London. They say we've got 2.4 million people. 
we're just going to pay for it once. And so the data from all the hospitals, mental health providers, GPs, social care, all of it comes into one place and we'll cover that in one fee. That, by the way, for a place like Northwest London, you know, half of the people that Imperial looks after aren't even in London. They're from all over the UK and all over the world. But they just pay one fee based on the population and they just send all their data and we just hold it for their patients to either come across in the NHS app or register on the website. Do you feel like you operate in quite a competitive market? Because when I went onto the app store, I have got the NHS app. I was trying to find it and I thought, oh, so then I just came, you know, yeah. like, oh, it's not on there. That's a bit surprising. <laughs> but there's all your competitors are on there. Do you feel like it's a competitive landscape? I'll answer you two ways. As a business owner, it's not competitive. And I'll tell you why it's not, because you don't get to decide how your data arrives to you. Your hospital or your region has already decided long before you even knew about this. They've made the decision for you. And so once it's been decided, you decide whether to use with it and engage with it. And so whenever it comes to a regional procurement, we've basically won them all around a regional personal health record because we're the only ones that have done the NHS app integration. We're the only ones that have received this much data, done all the security and so on. But I'll tell you from a patient perspective, I'm really annoyed we haven't got any competition. Everyone should be doing this, but it is such a multi-stage faff to get through. There are so many people you have to please. I've seen in our 15 years, the healthcare system, not just in the UK, but in the USA and other countries, they've bankrupted so many companies because they took so long to make their decisions. And they made such small decisions that by the time you get to the, okay, this works, let's do this a big scale. There's no one left. There's no one who's done this in a sustained way. And it annoys me because it's so obviously what everybody should be doing. So how do you hang in there? Because one of my questions was like, how on earth did you get the integration with the NHS app? That would have taken a long, like you say, lots of hoops to jump through. But how do you hang in there when it is two steps forward, one step back for years, potentially? Yes. And actually, if you look at the original protest, I, I used to have hair when we started the company. So it took, <laughs> it took a while. It, it, I did used to have some. So I often get told you're very patient. It's not true. I'm, I'm very bloody minded. It's basically, we're just going to keep going till this works. But really, I mean, as you ask about things like the NHS app, it's actually, if you're doing something good, either great people come and want to work with you. And so if you look at the NHS app and every other thing that we've done, it's because of my colleagues. So for example, the NHS app, I got dragged into it. I didn't want to integrate with the NHS app because I wanted to build our own app. And my colleagues said, no, no, the NHS, this is the national strategy. Our customers want it. And then I said, to them, well, it can't be done. They won't talk to us and said, no, no, we can do it. And they went behind the scenes and we spent six months with them co-designing, co-building things. So I'm really lucky to have some amazing people working with me. And they are the ones who override my initial irritations or reactions. But if you can create an environment where they're happy working for the long term, then you can do impact at a really big scale. And that's what's enjoyable. That's what makes the bloody mindedness worth it in the end. You get to deliver things at country scale, basically. Is that a fair playing field? Because what you've said is that it's who you know and you went behind the scenes. So the NHS app was recent 2019, for example. Sorry, 2018. And the following year, all the companies that were working with the NHS trying to show data, they began losing contracts because everyone assumed the NHS app was going to build everything. But our existing customers said, no, no, PKB has something that the NHS app either can't do or is years away from doing. And we need it now. Our patients need to have this now. And this was 2019. So they scheduled the integration through the NHS, talking to the NHS, saying our patients need this. We were supposed to go live February 2020. And they paused <laughs> it and said, there's this global pandemic coming. We have to stop. 
And they came back the week afterwards and said, no, no, hang on. The national emergency response includes switching on the integration because you have people who have cancer or diabetes and they can't come to hospital, but they still have cancer or diabetes. They need to get their data. I didn't know anyone significant, but what we'd done is spend years working with NHS providers who said, this needs to be scaled up. This needs to be integrated with the national. They were the ones who were doing the lobbying. You get commissioned by ICB areas and hospital trusts. And where you say you're kind of onboarding 100,000 patients a month, like where are Mm -hmm. they coming from and how do they know about the app? Because my system obviously commissions it, but I didn't know about it. So a couple of ways. The biggest way is through the NHS app. I'm very proud of what we do, but I think most people find us because they're bored. So they're on the NHS app. What else does it do? They tap around, they find us, and then they register. Now, you and Kent, I can tell you this week, I was seeing an email from one of the hospitals saying, right, can you give us the numbers of people who have registered because we're going to text everybody else. So you may be about to get a text message from your hospital in advance, but they begin with the NHS app because people are just using it. And if they come across it, it's free of charge to onboard you without texting you or taking up clinical time. And that's the vast majority of the people who first come to us. But places like Imperial, for example, by the way, Imperial is interesting. They text everyone before an appointment saying you've got an appointment and if you want to look at the data, you can look at it. But in the last few months, I've suddenly realized that all the investors live in Northwest London because every investor call I'm having, they all say I've registered. And it's not because they had a call with me. It's because they live in Northwest London and get treated in Northwest London. So they got invited to register in Northwest London. And so it's interesting seeing what happens across the countries. Different providers have their protocols for onboarding patients. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. The main features are, I can see my healthcare record. I can create, co-create, edit a care plan. You mentioned text messages and there's a section for messages in the app. They are messages in text, but they're not SMS messages for things we're asking you. So if you want to send a message to a member of your team who signed up to receive messages from you, and I think because you self-registered and you haven't found any data, you're not yet linked to a provider who will send messages back and forth to you. But the messaging you're seeing in that is supposed to be you sending a message in text to a provider. You can attach anything to that message, by the way. So if you try it, it'll say you can attach up to 10 gigabytes. So you can take a photo of a skin rash. So we've got teams in Luton, for example, that have children with epilepsy. So the parents upload a video of the seizure because to diagnose epilepsy, you have to see it to give the right diagnosis, the right treatment. So you bring in the poor child and the family three days to a hospital. And of course, SOD's law, you don't see it. Or the nurse sees it, but not the consultant. So instead, they said to the parents, when it happens at home, obviously, it's very traumatic for everyone. But could you please just do a video of what's happened to that child? Because then you can upload it into PKB. 
you can pause it, you can replay it, you can bring in a super specialist, and then you get the right diagnosis to get the right treatment. So just the messaging itself is extremely powerful. And if, if you go to care plans, does it integrate with school? So if you've got children that have got conditions, you have like your care plan, but then your school has a care plan. In our experience, there was like about eight attached. I mean, I didn't even want to read through the care plan. <laughs> and I Sarah, went I to thought... the school and I felt really, and I said, I'm so sorry, but this is the care plan. This is what's come from the diabetes team. So how did your app work with schools? I'm so glad you asked. Can I just say, he didn't set me up to say, I don't know what he's going to say. <laughs> I say, I've been listening to you for a long time, but the thing that finally got me to, I need to talk to Tara, was I just want to talk about care plans. We won't go into our details about our children, but my own child, I had to do an EHCP for him. And so I don't know what your eight files were like, but mine were a nightmare. And they're so bureaucratic. They're so jargony. My wife and I are doctors and we're both struggling. Anyway, so once you've got a PKB record, you can invite anyone to have access to it. So you can make a care plan and you can invite anyone free of charge to register. The difficulty will be convincing the other party to accept the invite. So although I think schools are the best place to do this because they actually deliver a lot of care, not that they want to, but they do, whether it's an EpiPen or a whatever it is, they've got to know what to do for the child, but they're completely locked out of the NHS record. It's a parallel system. It's not safe for the children. They're not being nosy. They just want to be able to know what to do for that child. They also have all these massive web documents. They email back and forth. And, you know, there's three different versions. Hang on, hang on. You've got to come back to this version, please. It's a real administrative faff. If you start doing a care plan within PKB, and you can do attachments if you want to start with, and invite everyone. You can invite an NHS nurse. You can invite a school, Senko. Everyone can get access, as well as obviously the family. But what we're trying to do from next year is start increasing that communication to the schools. The reason we'd kept a low profile in the beginning is we wanted to populate the record. So your experience of arriving at a record that's empty, that really upsets me. I mean, you're being nice, but a lot of people say, what's the point of this then? And so Q1 next year, we set it up. So as soon as you register, your GP record is in there as a starting point. And then you can give as much or as little access to the school team as you would like. But they would take it a lot more seriously if you would say, it's got my child's GP record. Well, now you've got the high ground in terms of why your care plan is better than their care plan, because it's integrated with the NHS to begin with. And then once you bring in the school, you can bring in the NHS staff and so on. So that gives you the tools to manage the healthcare system. Our original tagline, by the way, was patients know best, manage your healthcare system. But we kind of reduced that one. But that's really <laughs> what we're trying to do. We're trying to let you manage the business of being a patient. But that care plan you have right now, you can invite anyone you want immediately and give them as much or as little access as you want for yourself or your family. Manage the business of being a patient. It's hard work. It is. And yeah. I think that even the people that work in the system, not in a bad way, you know, like you only know maybe as far as you can see and you can touch and you can experience. Yeah. But what, yes. you know, like if you're in primary care, what happens in secondary care? If you're in secondary care, what happens in community care? If you're in community care, what happens in social care? If you're in social care, what happens in a, a charity? It's hard. So what is the role of the patient in all of this? What is your view? There's a spectrum, isn't there? You've got some people that touch wood are fine and dandy. Don't go to the doctor's. 
<laughs> they go to the dentist, but they've got a nice set of teeth. <laughs> they're happy. They're alive and kicking. You've got those patients. And then you've got patients that have got really rare, complex, expensive conditions. And you've got mm. this growing mass in the middle of conditions that are developing because of their lifestyle and the role of each of those patients will be different and they have to navigate around the system and even though it's absolutely in their interest it's really hard I can imagine there's some patients think oh do you know what I'll wait till I get really ill and I'll go <laughs> like all of us right I'll answer you in two ways, Sarah, because from a patient's perspective, my short answer is you've got to do something. Um, you can't just rely on everybody else. It's better for you as well as better for everybody else. There's a book I read called The Seven Storylines of Cinema. Basically, every Hollywood movie you got is only one of only seven storylines. And I read it and then stopped reading because it was so annoying. I couldn't watch a movie anymore. I <laughs> and so, no, I'm not going to read it. Don't, don't watch it. So, but there is the first one, which is the hero movie. And it says the hero is always reluctant. So whenever you have a hero movie, whether it's a Guardian of the Galaxy, whatever, they always start with, I don't want to do this, or Braveheart doesn't actually want to fight, he's just the farmer and so on. And it is the same with the patient. So even the rare disease patient who does it, they don't want to do it. Nobody enjoys healthcare. Nobody enjoys thinking about their body. But you do have to do it. You do have to pay attention. A lot of the doctors say, you know, if you have the system, I'm going to be overwhelmed by the worried well. It doesn't happen. They don't enjoy coming to see you that often. But the real problem you should worry about is the unworried unwell. The person who really needs help, but is just in denial about it, which is most of us, right, in including me. So I was a grumpy teenager, hated doing it. But until one nurse taught me how to inject myself and then I had independence, I could go to uni, I could work, I could get married. Things changed when I got agency. So that's one side from the patient. You have to do it even though you hate to do it. But the other side is I always think the most important thing about PKB isn't the poster and the waiting room for the patient to see it. It's the patient in the waiting room for the family member to see it. Let's just do general stereotypes. So typical middle-aged man goes to an appointment. Wife says, what happened? And he said, it was fine. She says, but you were there for 10 minutes. What did you discuss? It was fine. Really, I want the poster there for the wife to see it and to say, right, let's get access to your records. Hang on. Doctor's been saying four years now, right, tomorrow we're changing the diet. We're changing the exercise. So it's the family circle that drives behavior change because most healthcare professionals are terrible driving behavior change, but it's someone you love who's going to change what you do. And they need a bit of data. They need to look at the record to help you out. They're there to help you. And so I think if you combine the patient stepping up and their family being allowed to do what they really want to do, but haven't been able to, that's what I'm looking for. When you talk about being able to access data. So I volunteer for a lovely lady called Joan. She showed me a letter from her hospital consultant. So this year I was like, yeah, yeah I'll read it. And then <laughs> it's like, yes. hang on, let me try and read it again. And then yeah, like, yeah. I had to get out of Google. It wasn't very long, but I didn't understand it yes. at all. Mm -hmm. So that's great that you're providing the ecosystem for that communication yes. to take place. But we need to be able to understand what is being said. And sometimes... Yes. I know some conditions are complicated, but it is a partnership. Don't give me loads of data that I can't understand because that's yes. going to turn me off mm -hmm. even more. Like you hook me in, I'm trying, yes. and now I need to message you to go, what does this mean? And that doctor may not be like the friendly doctor that you have described because <laughs> people are busy, right? And they're like, they're oh, busy, they they're busy. They've got stuff to do. Yeah. yeah. So is there anything that your company does to help improve? It's not improving the literacy, but helping patients to understand their language. 
what I will say is that it's very difficult to read that lady's letter, but it's impossible if you didn't have the letter to know what the doctor had told her, right? So at least I've got your starting point. You might scan it, you might Google some words, you might even send it to chat GPT. I mean, stuff is improving all the time. But I want to just say to any professionals listening about, hang on, am I going to have to rewrite my letters for Tara? I haven't got time to do that. Is the only thing we ask is, could you not use abbreviations? Because abbreviations are ambiguous. So when the doctor said SOB, did he mean short of breath or did he mean son of a whatever it is, right? So if you just get rid of the abbreviations, you can get rid of the ambiguity and then people can translate. So we're working on the improvement translations over time. But, you know, the first family we started with was in Great Ormond Street Hospital. And I remember there was this Nigerian family. So the doctors told me, you have to explain to the families how to use this. They won't understand it. So I sat with this mum and her seven-year-old child. And I was trying to click around. And the kid just took the mouse away and began clicking around. I said, yeah, how did you know? And he said, well, I use Facebook. And I realized the real problem was the doctors don't know how to use Facebook, but the patients do know how to use it. And that was the first time I began seeing a child. He was explaining to his mum what was going on. And you also have this, I mean, you were talking about the English language being complex. Imagine you can't speak English. You have immigrant families where the child is translating for the parent what the English meant in their native language. So it all starts from the data. That's what we can begin with. Now, how can you make the data easier to understand? One answer is that's the next 15 years of my life. But the other answer is that the user interfaces, the pace of translation is exponential. Um, we do link out to resources. So if you get a test result with, say, hemoglobin, we do link out to what does the word hemoglobin mean for a layperson. But the letters is the next one to look at. Even simple things like you've got your diagnoses and your medications. I'm sure you've asked your doctor, but most patients, especially elderly ones, don't actually know what medication goes with what diagnosis. The doctor hasn't had time. They haven't taken it in. So we want to explain that to the patient as well. There's a lot you can do around explanation. My job is liberating data from hospital basements. So once we've gotten over that, then we can start doing the clever things, explaining that to people. You've got such a cool job. It's really good fun. And the thing is, every day I'll talk to someone. I never knew people did that. Well, no, I've written down, send it to chat GPT. Why did I not think of that? <laughs> <laughs> so what's the role of AI in your organization? There's two parts to AI. The chat GPT is a user interface for explaining things to you. That's what the consumers discovered in the last six months, right? Whatever it is, I can now start talking to it using English or French or Arabic, whatever it is, and it'll yeah. talk to me in my language. I can even give it a prompt to say, explain to me like a 10-year-old, and it will. So that's really powerful in terms of user interface. But the other side of it is the machine learning, which is if you've got a chunk of data, which is inputs and outputs, how can you get the computer to figure out the link between them? And it will just start doing maths. It will do a math that you and I can't understand, but it will start figuring out that if this happens, that's going to happen. So I can start giving you predictions. And that's what's really exciting. For me, the next few years, applying machine learning to the data that we have, which has never existed before, right? So no one's combined data from not just the GP in the hospital, but also your Strava and any text messages you're typing into your doctor, or any videos you've uploaded of your child, for example. So that combined data set doesn't exist in anyone's medical record. I mean, it's a simple example. You're asking about whoop and getting your sleep patterns. Your GP has nowhere to store your sleep patterns. All they have is a field that says, I asked Tara about her sleep and she says she's not sleeping well. But you've got an app that has minute by minute how you've been sleeping for the last six months. That's really interesting. My father has Parkinson's. There are machine learning AI companies that would have caught that years before from how he talks on his phone. It would just notice the changes in your speech over years and predict it. There are other apps that notice changes in how you walk just from your phone being in your pocket. It's a motion sensor. That's the interesting stuff that's coming in AI. 
the reason I say it's exponential is that the speed of change is no one understands how fast this is going to go. But the more you pick up the data from the patient, the more you combine data, the more you have a layer on which you can do the really clever things with the AI. So you've talked about, I've forgotten the terminology that you use, but when somebody logs on, you want to make sure their data is there. So mine is blank at the moment. So you're working on that. Yes. We've talked about kind of school partnerships with the care plan, more integration. So maybe it will integrate with my Whoop one day and Apple Health. You want to build your own app. We've talked about the translation and explanations of certain things, kind of using AI and then the, the world of AI known and unknown. How long is your strategic plan? We think generationally. I used to work at the National Institute of Health. So that was basically $50 billion a year. They used to fund biomedical research in the USA. They've been doing it for decades. And I read that the person who first got them funding, he said the NIH is a noble conspiracy. Basically, a group of people know what the right thing should be, and they're trying to collect as much money as possible to make it happen. And I often think of PKB in that way. So we're working with providers, clinical leaders, charities, families. This has to happen. There often isn't the budget for it. People like to think in their silos, they've got a budget for this, a budget for that, but nothing across all of them. And so we collect money from wherever we can to drive that forward. But it does mean that we think in years, if not decades, around what's it going to look like if Tara has everything and she understands everything and she can do a lot of things. What would the healthcare system look like? Not only do we stop talking about patients, but those people you're talking about that have great teeth without going to the dentist, what can we do to keep them looking that way with the minimal effort? Because the gift that I had is that even though I had a very serious illness, I wasn't asked to pay for it. So we want everyone to have that. And we want everyone who already has that to continue having that. And the only way to do that is that at least some of the people, some of the time can look after themselves. And so how do you structurally change how healthcare is delivered so that you're using that patient as an asset rather than you just trying to fund it as a liability all the time? That's the kind of change that we're trying to do over years. How much time do you spend looking out into other countries to see how they do things versus kind of looking internally and being focused on your mission and the more tangible things that you guys can achieve? I'm noticing about other countries all the time. I mean, my focus this year has been to bring what we've done in England and Wales and the Netherlands to the Gulf. I'm from Bahrain originally, so that's kind of my easy advantage. But if you look at the Gulf countries, you can do things top down a bit easier. And they like to learn from what the NHS does. What's interesting for me is, because I was spending a lot of time during COVID looking at, you know, how are the countries doing it? And the NHS often talks itself down. Nobody had released as much data as the NHS had done. And if you look at COVID, whereas most countries, the state began collecting more data, you know, where are you? Who have you been in contact with? Which is fine for public health. But the English state also released a lot more data. Here's your test results in PKB. Here's the public health outcomes. So that transparency, which everybody finds difficult anyway, it's still NHS has gone the furthest ahead. When I talk to people in Japan or Australia, they say that that's quite a big shift for us culturally. And so what I'm looking at for other countries is definitely learn from them, but also there's a lot to teach. I want this model for everyone to benefit from it all over the world. You said the NHS kind of talks itself down, but I think sometimes we patients talk it down. I agree. I agree. So beyond the obvious, everybody's doing heroic work every day, but that's about the individuals against, I think the system is actually rather good. When I look at digital health across other European countries, they all start in the UK. That's the first serious market. It's much earlier in adoption. When I came back to the UK from the States in 2008, the UK had the largest per capita spending on advertising online. So even though the UK income is two thirds of the US income, 
the UK consumer was still getting more because the UK consumer is so far ahead by the countries. The UK only recently got overtaken by China in terms of online retail spending. But the UK is the second and it's far ahead of every other Western country. And then on the clinical side, the digitization is much higher than the rest of Europe. So it pioneers the stuff a lot more than it gives itself credit for. But it's a real asset what we have here. Is Patients Know Best a social enterprise? We're a social enterprise, but people normally think that means it's a nonprofit or a community interest company. So we're not that. Articles of Association embed our social mission. We're a benefit corporation, a B Corp. We were in the first cohort to do that in 2015 in the UK. But when I started in 2008, I went to this charity in London called Unlimited, which helps social enterprises. And I went to them because I was trying to get some open source software. I was just doing something nerdy on the side. The guy said to me, explain to me what you do. And I said to him, and he said, what you're doing is a social enterprise. What's a social enterprise? And he said, well, you're trying to embed a social good into a business model, which, by the way, is very difficult. You should be careful, but you should also recognize what you're doing and you should operate formally as a social enterprise, which we did. And then in 2011, Ashoka recognizes as a social enterprise. And they're the people who backed Grameen Bank for microfinance and Jimmy Whale for Wikipedia before anybody else had recognized them. So we operate from day one as a social enterprise, but it's a for-profit company limited by shares in England. Is health tech a profitable business to be in? <laughs> there are many very profitable companies in health tech, but the majority struggle to find a business model. So if I look at the business models that are working, it's either the medical record systems, and that's because they're billing systems, not because they deliver clinical care. The GP systems, the hospital systems, the ones that make money are the ones that send the bill to NHS England. And the second one is the therapeutics companies. So if you can make software that replaces a pill or even better an operation, and it's just end-to-end -end with the patient, like a sleepio, for example, it helps with insomnia rather than taking the pills. Those kind of companies make really good money. The other companies, although they're doing very good work, they really struggle to find a line item to get paid for. That's the difficulty. It's not that they don't do anything good. The line items are not yet organized to recognize them. And my final question for anybody listening that doesn't register on the NHS app <laughs> or yes. Patients Know Best, what would you like to kindly ask them to do? Could you go to patientsknowbest.com slash register, please? It's free. You can register. Can I encourage you to think about the next time you're with a doctor's appointment saying to the doctor, can you stop for a second? I'm just going to write your care plan in here while you're talking. So ask them, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What happens if I don't do it? And write down what they say. And the last thing is, wait three more months and I'll get you a GP record in case your record is empty. Promise I'm on it and I'll get you an app later on. <laughs> so bear with us. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed the call. Thank you, Daryl. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.